Welcome to Timeless Truth with Pastor Jim Thomas, a resource of the Village Chapel in Nashville, Tennessee. As you're considering your plans for this new year, we wanted to let you know TBC will be embarking on a Journeys of Paul tour July 7th through 16. We'll step into history and walk where the Apostle Paul walked as we visit Philippi, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus, and many other meaningful locations. This tour will bring the scriptures to life with worship services and Bible studies with Pastor Jim. You can learn more at thevillagechapel.com tour. This week, we continue our study of the Gospel of Mark. Now, here's Pastor Jim. Mark chapter 10 continues to overflow with treasures of wisdom, as well as giving us a great look at the heart of Jesus himself, uh, as well as uh, a good look, an honest look at the heart of the disciples, those who are following Jesus. Look with me if you have your Bible or just listen if you happen to be driving or running or whatever it might be. Uh, Mark chapter 10, verses 32 to 45. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem. And it's always said that way, by the way. If you're going to Jerusalem, you're going up. It's the holy city. It's not the highest city, but even if it's not the highest city, it is considered the most holy city to the Jews in the New Testament. This was the, the sort of capital, uh, the religious capital of their world and of their time. And so for them, they would always talk about going up to Jerusalem or coming down from Jerusalem. They were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking on ahead of them. That's what a rabbi would do. They would be following along. And by the way, this I'll remind you, this is all during the uh, sort of setup for Passover. So there's a lot of traffic on the road. Uh, Jews from all around the Mediterranean might be coming. Um, uh, hundreds and thousands of them actually could be coming to Jerusalem for the festival, the feast, if you will, of Passover. So he's walking on ahead of them. They were amazed. And those who followed were fearful. And again, he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. So a lot of uh, uh, anxiety you kind of sense in this verse, don't you? And uh, that might be because as they head toward the the, the capital city, the religious capital city, uh, some of the disciples are thinking politically about Jesus. They're thinking, oh man, we're going to the big city. We're going downtown. We are going to overthrow the Roman government. And they want Jesus to be a political Messiah. And I think some people want that even in our own day and time. They want him to somehow or another serve their political purposes, their political agenda. Uh, and that's on all sides of the political spectrum. So um, if, uh, you know, I'll say what I, I say all, uh, all the time, is that if Jesus fits nicely into your political scheme or your political party, um, you're not really talking about the Jesus of the Bible. Uh, he doesn't fit very neatly into any of our human <laughs> schemes or plans. So they are a little bit, some of them fearful because they don't know what's going to happen. We're going downtown. Let's, you know, is this going to be it? Is he going to overthrow the Roman government? Is this the oppressor, uh, the Roman, you know, uh, empire that is the oppressor in this particular case uh, and set Israel free? Well, he took the 12 aside and he began to tell them what was going to happen to him. I love that about this leader, Jesus. No finer leader has ever lived. But he senses some unrest in those who are his followers, and he wants to take the time 
to explain to them, to even give them a little bit of a heads up, a little bit of a warning, if you will. And that's what he does here in verse 33, saying, Behold, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and will deliver him up to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. Hmm. That'd be one thing if Jesus was talking about someone else, but he's not. He's talking about himself. As a matter of fact, son of man is Jesus' most often used self-reference title. Um, we find it all through the Gospels. He calls himself the Son of Man and um, tying himself to that prophecy from Daniel uh, chapter 7. And here, for the third time recorded in Mark's Gospel, we have Jesus talking about his suffering, his death, uh, and his resurrection as well. Uh, it happened in what we call chapter 8, verse 31, chapter 9, verse 31, and now here it is. Again, this time with a little, um, maybe increased detail. Um, he, he, it's very, it's almost visual, isn't it? When he says that the um, Son of Man will be delivered up to the chief priests and the scribes, they will condemn him to death. They will deliver him up to the Gentiles. And they do that, those of us who've read the rest of the story of Jesus and understand it from these gospel records. Um, yeah. That's exactly what happens. Jesus is dragged before the religious leaders as they arrest him in the Garden of Gethsemane, and they come up with a sort of a, a, a trump, some trumped-up charges of insurrection and uh, political unrest. And so they're going to take him to the Gentiles, to the Romans, especially to Pilate, and um, those folks who are in the Roman Empire, their chief concern was keep the peace and keep the tribute money coming to Rome. And that way they look good, those who worked for the Roman Empire, they look good in the eyes of the emperor. And so they would try to quash any kind of uprising. And there were many, we know from history, uh, back during that day and time. So if the religious leaders can cast or frame Jesus as a political insurrectionist, they know they can get him arrested or treated harshly and hopefully even killed by the Romans. The Jews themselves did not have the power of capital punishment under the Roman system at that particular time. They could arrest somebody. They had their own uh, temple guard and that sort of thing, but they could not put him to death. And of course, we know murder is on their mind. We've already seen that as we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark. And Jesus goes on to say, not only will they turn him over, turn me over to the Gentiles, he says to his disciples. But those Gentiles will mock him and spit upon him and scourge him and kill him. All of this is, you know, in much greater detail than chapter 8, verse 31, or chapter 9, verse 31. So as he gets closer and closer to the actual event, Jesus is be, being very much more clear about what's going to happen to him. Why would he be doing that as a leader? 
I think that's an important thing to think about. As a good leader, he's doing that so that when it happens, uh, or perhaps shortly after it happens, these guys will, perhaps it'll dawn on them that he took the time in advance to tell them this. That's one reason. I think just as a good leader, he wants to prepare them. But secondly, I also think that we, reading it so many years later, now we're starting to get the idea that Jesus was the one who was in charge of every bit of this. He knew exactly what was going to happen. And yet he still went through the whole thing. Why? Because he loves you and he loved me. And when he did this, he did this to save us from our sin, to die on the cross in my place and in your place, to pay the price for our sin, to take the wrath of God upon himself as he took our sin with him to Calvary, to the cross, so that he could then give us his righteousness. So that's the master plan that we know because we've got the whole New Testament. But in this particular moment, Jesus is simply warning his disciples about what's going to happen. It will make better sense to them later. And uh, even as uh, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the gospels are written well after the time that Jesus ascended back into heaven, they will with much greater clarity be able to uh, to be able to tell these stories and with much greater hope be able to tell these stories that Jesus was in charge, Jesus was in control the entire time. And I think that's profound, isn't it? So he goes on with the, after giving the detail, they will mock him, the, the, the Romans, as they, as they do, we know this, and they'll spit upon him, even that. And they will scourge him. And we know that happens with a, a cat of nine tails, whips, and uh, they will kill him. And three days later, he will rise again. And I love that the resurrection is mentioned in this chapter, as well as in chapter nine, as well as in chapter eight, all three of the predictions of his death. He, he talks about his suffering and his death, but he always tags that right on the end. And as just as your heart is beginning to sink, he goes, oh yeah, but by the way, that death will not have the last word when it comes to comes to me. And so Jesus so beautifully uh, offers that up. But what, how do the disciples respond to all of this? Here's Jesus literally as a great leader, pouring his heart out uh, in front of these disciples and explaining to them what's going to happen as they move toward the big city, you know. And some of them probably thinking we're going downtown, probably thinking politically, and we, we know some of them were confused about all of this. And and prepping them for for what's about to be pretty shocking that he gets arrested and uh, and undergoes all of the Passion Week, all that he goes through. And how do these guys respond when Jesus takes the time as a as a leader? And you know, I mean, for, not not only to to be conscious of what their needs are. What about, you know, his own humanity wrestling and struggling, knowing that he's going to be spit upon, knowing that he's going to be scourged with a cat of nine tails, knowing that he's going to be put to death uh, physically and that he's going to rise again, of course. Um, well, here's how the disciples respond. This is how Mark um, describes their response. James and John, the two sons of Zebedee. Remember, um, these are sort of the big 
bouncers of the disciples. They're called the Sons of Thunder elsewhere uh, because, you know, it's got, it sounds like they're wrestling names, doesn't it? Um, James and John, the sons of Zebedee, uh, they came up to him, to Jesus, saying to him, Teacher, we want you to do for us whatever we ask of you. All right, now, is <laughs> after Jesus has just poured his heart out to tell them that he's going to undergo all of this, and the very <laughs> next thing Mark records is how James and John, just it just goes right over their head, and the first thing they do is they, they come up, will you do for us whatever we ask you to do? And this is childish. It is self-centered. And uh, Jesus responds to them. I, well, I know how I would respond to them, but here's what Jesus responds in. What do you want me to do for you? How gracious, how gracious of Jesus. I would have responded with a lightning bolt myself or turned them both into toads or frogs or, or insects or something. I don't know. I, I can think of a lot of things I would have done, but I wouldn't have been quite as gracious as Jesus was in this particular moment. And I marvel at him. He is, um, he's beautiful, not only for his compassion and kindness to heal people, but also to not <laughs> do some of the things that some of the folk deserve to have done to them. And so in this particular moment, very gracious to them, what do you want me to do for you? And they said to him, grant that we may sit in your glory, one on your right and one on your left. In other words, they're intoxicated with the potential power as they head for the, you know, the the the, the city, the principal city of Jerusalem. The you know, the, they're thinking again politically. They're thinking uh, sociologically in in some ways as well. And what they want to do is be in close proximity to the power of Jesus. Uh, so one on your right, one on your left. Grant that force. Jesus said to them, and again, I'd be throwing lightning bolts. So thankfully, I'm I'm not the Son of God. I'm not the Son of Man. I'm not I'm not Jesus. And you don't have to look to me for salvation. Just look to Jesus. Verse thirty eight says this. Jesus responded to them, "You do not know what you are asking for. Are you able to drink the cup that I drink, or to be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized?" And they said to him, "We are able." Well, here's that overconfidence again. So many believers, even in our own day and time, are this way, aren't they? And when Jesus says, "Can you?" you drink the cup, what he's saying is, can you go through what I'm about to go through? Are you are you able to be baptized with the thing I'm going to be baptized with? You know, and, and baptism has a total identification uh, of, uh, of Jesus himself with um, all of us who are sinners, taking it all on himself, going to the cross and dying in our place to pay the price for our sins. Can you do that, James and John? Will you be able to handle that? And of course they go, we are able. <laughs> this again, uh, like, just like Peter. Uh, Peter, James, and John, all three of them have this sort of overconfidence problem. And I have it too, don't I? That'll never happen to me. I'll, I'll, never, I'll, I'll never fall to that temptation. Uh, I'll, I'll never cave in. I'll never deny Christ. 
Um, I'll, I'll walk with you faithfully, Jesus. We all say that all the time. And uh, it's so important for us to see the humanity here in these disciples and to see the grace here in Jesus, isn't it? Um, they answered him, verse 39 says, we are able, and Jesus said to them, the cup that I drink you shall drink, and you shall be baptized with the baptism with which I am baptized. They're both going to die for their faith. Uh, James will be the first of the disciples to be martyred. Uh, John, as far as we can tell, will be the last, and um, as, as best we know from church tradition and some of the uh, uh, accounts that we have uh, about the way some of these disciples died. Jesus says, you're going to go through this. This is going to happen. You're actually going, this is going to happen to you. But to sit on my right or on my left, this is not mine to give, but it is for those for whom it has been prepared. In other words, again, he points to the Father. He's on mission. Um, God the Father uh, sending Jesus here, sending the Son to accomplish our salvation, the plan of salvation. God the Father, the um, uh, the one who, who comes and accomplishes our salvation, Jesus, and the one who applies our salvation, the Holy Spirit. Well, what happens after he says, well, this is going to happen to you, but I'm not the one that's going to give you know somebody the opportunity to sit on my right or on my left. That's for those uh, for whom it has been prepared. The sovereign God, the Father, in charge of it all. And hearing this, this is what the rest of the disciples are all sort of listening to this as James and John are saying all of this. And hearing this, verse 41, and I'll, I'll stop after I read this part right here. The ten began to feel indignant towards James and John. Of course, who do you think you are, James and John? I mean, that's just really amazing. And then Jesus goes on, watch this, to uh, redefine what greatness is. In other words, the other disciples are thinking James and John a little too uh, big for their britches, a little too high and mighty, who, elitist in their thinking, you know. Um, well, calling them to himself, Jesus, knowing what's going on, said to them, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not so among you. But whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. Um, this is the, the same word uh, that our New Testament word deacon comes from, you know? So you, the one who serves. And so the whole idea of servant leadership comes into play. And this is what Jesus exemplified, um, the, the greatest servant leader of all. And then um, whoever wishes to be first among you will be slave or doulos, uh, bondservant, if you will. Whoever wishes to be first among you will be a slave or a bondservant to all. And others, you always put others first, is what Jesus is saying. You want to be great, then you'll be a servant. Uh, if you wish to be first, then you'll put others ahead of yourself. And then verse 45, to wrap up our reading today, for even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life a ransom for many. Wow, that's so great. Um, what does that image ransom, how does that uh, conjure, or what does that stir up in your own heart and mind as you think about it today? Christ giving his life a ransom for many. He 
paying the price with his death. He paid the price to give us life, to set us free, if you will. And that's what a ransom is indeed. It's a a price that's paid to redeem, to rescue someone. Well, again, here for the third time, Jesus foretells um, his suffering, his death, and even his resurrection. He came for this purpose, And he has both taught and shown his disciples as well as the crowds his self-sacrificial love in word and in deed. But here, with the disciples anyway, we see that their own aspirations have blinded them to the heavenly mission of Jesus and to the heavenly mission that Jesus calls those who follow him to be on with him. This great quote from J.C. Ryle, his commentary on the Gospel of Mark He would have us know that his death was the great end for which he came into the world. He would remind us that by that death, the great problem was to be solved. How God could be just and yet justify sinners. He did not come upon earth merely to teach and preach and work miracles. He came to make satisfaction for sin by his own blood and suffering on the cross. We say it so many times at the village chapel. um, Jesus didn't come to just be an example, although there is none finer. He's the best example there ever uh, was or ever will be. No, he came to be a savior. I don't need, maybe you have come to the conclusion for yourself as well. I don't need another example to follow. I can't, there's no way I could keep up with following Jesus. Like, uh, I need a savior. And he, uh, thankfully, uh, he is a savior. He's come to rescue us. Um, In an unavoidable contrast, the disciples display and expose their own self-centeredness, their overconfidence, their personal ambition, their lust for power. Uh, Total opposite of Jesus, who comes to sacrifice himself, lay his life down, and serve others as opposed to being served himself. And I'll end today with this quote from Tim Keller uh, in uh, book Gospel in Life is the name of the title title of the book, rather. Um, These are in the show notes for you if you are curious about getting them. There is a place in society for a new Christian a new Christian movement that practices love and justice, that answers the great questions of purpose, meaning, hope, happiness, guilt, and forgiveness, identity, questions that the secular culture has given up on. But it must avoid the abuses of power and the mistakes of religious regimes of the past. That's from Tim Keller in uh, his book, Gospel in Life. Highly recommend that to you. It's a great read. And that's really worth thinking about, isn't it? We've got to learn to avoid the abuses of power. And Jesus here trying to communicate that with his own disciples. And here, so many years later, I think we can learn that exact same thing from Jesus as we read a passage like this today. You're, you and I, we are all in leadership in some capacity. It might be just that some friends are looking to you. Um, it might be some friends that you might be the only Christian they know. It might be your own family. It might be some of the folks you work with. 
Um, it could be that you are indeed responsible as a spiritual leader of some sort. We have people listening to this podcast from literally around the world. Uh, Australia, we've heard from Australia, we've heard from Singapore, we've heard from India, we've heard from uh, the United Kingdom, Canada. We've heard from folks all over the United States as well. There's certainly some of you that are responsible in leadership positions. And Jesus would say to all of those who want to follow in the Jesus way of leadership, um, that we are to follow him in this self-sacrificial love for those we serve. And uh, I think Keller had it right there, um, that we are to be a part of that new Christian movement that practices love and justice, that answers those great questions of purpose, meaning, hope, happiness, guilt, and forgiveness, and even identity, especially now identity. We need to be those who rest secure in the identity that's given to us, not one that we discover, but that's given to us. It's a gift given by the Lord himself, the one who created us. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this passage. I pray for myself. I pray for all my friends, my brothers and sisters in Christ, near and far, Lord, that each and every one of us uh, would recognize what a beautiful, majestic, what a wonderful thing you did for us in uh, coming um, into this world to lay down your life for us, to serve uh, rather than to be served. And so, Lord, we're drawn to the the beauty of your love for us. And I pray, Lord, that the grace that you've shown to us, we could now show to others. I pray that for my brothers and sisters, no matter who we encounter today. Help us, Lord, to see ourselves on mission with you uh, to lay down our lives for the glory of God and for the good of our neighbors. Pray this in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen and amen. Read ahead. Thanks for listening to today's study. Take a moment to leave a review and share this episode with friends and family. You can stay connected by signing up for our newsletter or follow us on social media. At the Village Chapel, we believe God's Word is unique in its source, timeless in its truth, broad in its reach, and transforming in its power. For more resources or to support our ministry, visit our website, thevillagechapel.com.